0: Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. So today's episode is on assessing U.S. foreign policy with reason and logic. And the reason that I kind of emphasize the with reason and logic is that a lot of foreign policy discussions are really vague and unproductive. You know, we talk about, you know, U.S. influence and U.S. security and U.S. Um, you know, projections of power and all these kind of euphemisms that kind of sound reasonable but really don't have that much content. So I want to try to get a lot more precise about like what foreign policy actually is and then try to assess it on some reasonable criteria. Now you might ask, what are my credentials for this? And I want to be upfront about that. I do not have a doctorate degree in foreign policy. I have not been involved in, you know, international negotiations. And, you know, I don't sit on the Council of Foreign Relations. What I do have is a long kind of history of reading a lot of books and articles on foreign policy and foreign affairs. I studied politics as a hobby in my you know undergraduate and graduate degrees in terms of you know auditing courses taking courses sitting in on lectures and then i have also a lot of colleagues in the kind of foreign policy and security field that i talk with and converse with so i'd say you know i am not an expert in this field but i think i have enough knowledge to at least put together some coherent thoughts that may be of use to you all and might be a good way for us to kind of organize our thinking, because foreign policy is obviously very important. My point here is not to put forth a comprehensive and super detailed analysis of foreign policy, and particularly U.S. foreign policy, but just to think clearly about what the purpose and objectives should be, and to then just look at My own country, the United States, and say, How have we done on this score? Now, humans are dominated by fear, right? It is our, you know, the main kind of motivation and almost all that we do in many aspects of our life. And this is why foreign policy is really an area where you get the most irrational behavior, the most wasteful spending. Counterproductive policies because there's just a not lot, not a lot of clarity when people are just getting ginned up in fear, right? You know, I saw this firsthand after 9/11. I saw a scared country and a scared populace be just sent down a horrible path of just destruction and immorality by George Bush and Dick Cheney and a right-wing wicked cabal. That really, to be honest, we have still not recovered from, you know, 20 years later. But putting that example aside for a moment, I just want to cut through all the vague notions, the euphemisms. I want to cut through the irrational fears and just think clearly about the role of foreign policy for a nation and particularly for the United States. And by foreign policy, I mean much more than just the military. I mean the whole foreign policy apparatus, which in the U.S. includes the State Department, you know, our trade representatives, all of our treaties and treaty obligations, all of the agencies coordinating with other countries on everything from the climate emergency to pandemics to illegal trafficking, both in humans and wildlife. And so... I just think of foreign policy as much bigger than the military, although, of course, the military, especially in the U.S., is very central to our foreign policy. I'm recording this episode right at the time where it seems like the likelihood of Russia invading Ukraine is a distinct possibility. And so, you know, foreign affairs... Whether we like it or not, continually are thrust into our consciousness, and so maybe this is a good moment to just think about it with a kind of bigger lens. And again, I'm going to start by putting forth some objectives of foreign policy as I see them in the order of importance, and uh, and then you know I'm going to start generically, and then I will come back and assess U.S. foreign policy based on these criteria. So. Number one, number one priority of a country's foreign policy is to protect the physical safety of its citizens and secondarily of its allies and also of its assets, right? So this is not just vague security. It means talking about, you know, the physical safety of a nation's citizens and of their assets, right? So I want to really try to get a little bit more precise here. Right. So U.S. foreign policy should protect American lives and also to some extent our allies and also but protect our energy grid from attack, should protect the intellectual property of American firms from theft from, you know, foreign adversaries. Right. So a lot of this work is often in the purview of the military and can be thought of as the core of our foreign policy. But not all of it, right, protecting IP, protecting the, the grid, you know, that might be part military, part not, right? So it can kind of blend into other, um, other agencies and other areas. Now, of course, it's important to note that sometimes, as is the case in America today, the threats to American citizens and our assets come not only from foreign powers, but from our own citizens, Right. So foreign powers are not the only potential threat. You know, I don't want to get sidetracked on that right now, but it's important to note because I think a very credible case can be made that the greatest threats to U.S. citizen safety and our wealth and our institutions and our the basic material prosperity comes from right wing extremists who are more often than not enabled by the Republican Party or at least nominally aligned with them, and not by foreign powers, right? So this is a pretty big caveat. You know, I've, I've had full episodes on that, but I think it's important to know. Now, moving on, the second, I think, highest priority of foreign policy is to coordinate the provision of global public goods. So what does this mean? It means coordinating with foreign powers on things like pandemic prevention and response, on addressing the climate crisis, on protecting global biodiversity, on protecting the ozone layer, right? So these are about protecting global assets that one country alone is unable to protect, but which all countries benefit from and really, you know, rely on, right? We rely on a stable climate, on an ozone layer without holes on it, right? On, you know, Not all wildlife being decimated, right? So these are global public goods and a big part of foreign policy is working, you know, across borders to to make sure we protect and uh, conserve them. Now, many of these public goods are environmental, right? Since pollution and ecosystem degradation does not, you know, do not respect nor confine themselves to political boundaries. Pandemic is an interesting one, obviously, in this moment. Um, These uh, it's definitely an an environmental related issue because most pandemics come from, you know, are zootropic um, in the sense that they come from animals and, and then they are transferred to humans. But pandemic might be kind of thought of as part of global health. Right. Global health is also a public good, at least on some dimensions. So that's the second priority for foreign policy. The third is to promote a rules based international order that help serve the objectives number 1 and number 2 which is safety of security of citizens and assets and also the provision of global public goods now what does a rules based system mean it means creating an international order where countries play by generally accepted rules regarding trade property rights sovereignty of nations health and safety standards etc so that travel and commerce can operate smoothly and safely, and sustained economic growth can be achieved. When I get into the assessment for the U.S. on this dimension, I'll get into a little bit more of the kind of precise things. Because even again, rules-based international order—it's kind of vague. Sounds good, sounds sophisticated, but what does it really mean? I will I will put some more substance into that um, in the subsequent uh, section. And then finally, the fourth you know, um, priority objective of foreign policy is to promote human rights and prevent humanitarian disasters. Now, I put this point last because if countries achieve the first three objectives that I've laid out, this will go a long way towards promoting human flourishing and well-being. And it is also, it is incredibly difficult to change the internal domestic affairs of in foreign countries. So my point here is that if a country does a good job at protecting its own citizens and its own assets, it promotes global public goods and promotes a rules-based system, that's going a long way to promoting human rights and preventing humanitarian disasters. It doesn't achieve it completely, but it goes a long way to. Now, the reason that I put this as number four is all countries have large blind spots. That makes for a lot of inconsistency and, frankly, hypocrisy on this front. Case in point, right? The U.S. as part of its global war on terror, one of the rationales was spreading democracy around. We can get into how much that was kind of a fig leaf to kind of cover up for, you know, more imperial um, objectives. But that was one of the stated things: bringing democracy to Afghanistan, bringing democracy to Iraq. The problem is, we have a barely defensible democracy at home in the United States. Our country is largely undemocratic in many ways. We have many large numbers of our citizens that are denied the full franchise. And we just have a system that is really quasi-democratic at best. So it's a little strange to be promoting democracy abroad when our own democracy is frail and fraying at the seams. Now, You know, however, promoting human rights and addressing pressing humanitarian situations like famines or a conflict like the Rwandan genocide should absolutely be included in the goals of a sane and rational foreign policy. Right. The global community should have a shared responsibility to avoid acute large scale tragedies and to generally promote human rights and foreign affairs, despite the unavoidable tensions and contradictions. So before taking a break, let me take a moment to share a few examples of how we can assess whether U.S. foreign policy meets these criteria that I've outlined, You know, and then I'll come back with some details after the break. So obviously, if many U.S. citizens are being killed by foreign adversaries and much of the country's wealth is being destroyed, then our foreign policy is probably a failure, Failure. Of course, we have to consider the baseline and the counterfactuals to some extent, which makes assessing foreign policy you know, oftentimes difficult. But it's not impossible, as we'll see in the case of the U.S. Also, a country that is actively working with other countries to address the climate crisis, to reduce trade barriers, to create international adjudication systems, to peacefully settle international disputes represents examples of a foreign policy working effectively. That should be praised and, 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 and noted. A nation, however, that has deep ties with and supports repressive regimes that are actively oppressing large numbers of their own citizens indicates a broken foreign policy and misgui- misguided far- foreign priorities. There may be times, of course, when you know we have to make a deal with the devil, Right, not everything is perfect, and sometimes those may be warranted under certain circumstances. But if those deals with the devil last decades and generations, they're probably an indication of misguided foreign priorities and uh, and a and a failing foreign policy apparatus. Because deals with the devil should probably be temporary and not long standing. So anyway, those are just kind of some overarching kind of ways to think about foreign policy that I think represent a pretty good way, a pretty good lens to kind of assess a nation's foreign goals and objectives, and then to assess how they're doing on those goals and objectives. So after the break, I will do that with respect to the U.S., All of that is just material, so won't you take the scenario, and just imagine, if each one is teaching one, we'll come together, so that we become a strong force, Then we can stay on course, find your direction through introspection, and for my people out there, I got a question, can we be the sole controllers of our fate, now who's gonna take the weight? (laughs) You (laughs) can't, you can't, you can't. Okay, so now on to assessing U.S. foreign policy. I want to begin by laying out the parts of U.S. foreign policy that I think are working quite well and deserve praise. With respect to coordinating the provision of public goods and creating a rules-based global economy, the U.S. has done a lot of great things. Back even in the Reagan era, we got the Montreal Protocol for protecting the ozone layer which has been a great international success and really incredible benefit to the global community. Our work building the international trading system, including the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, and the World Trade Organization, have greatly increased global commerce and wealth, and again have set up a kind of rules-based international system that has been tremendously positive. Overall, again, not without faults, but on net, tremendously positive. I think even the World Bank and the IMF, which the U.S. has played an outsized role in kind of setting up and financed, despite their tremendous flaws, have probably on net been positive for world development. Although I do think a case can be made that the time has come to scrap them. And I'll have more on that in a future episode. I think the Paris Climate Agreement is a great example of U.S. leadership and foreign policy, right? Without Obama's leadership, the Paris Climate Agreement probably would have fallen apart. And I'll throw John Kerry into the mix there, too. You know, he did tremendous work. And again, that's global public good of trying to stabilize the climate. And the U.S. leadership has been great. Again, not perfect, but overall really instrumental. I think under Obama, we did a lot on pandemic response response globally, particularly with respect to Ebola, that was exemplary. We really, you know, the U.S. State Department and military got involved, went to Africa and helped contain, you know, a global pandemic and just should be praised for that. Um, I think this has been, you know, uh, you know, that that episode was great. You know, I, I don't want to overplay this hand in terms of praising U.S. foreign policy in these dimensions. But I think a credible case can be made that U.S. leadership has been instrumental in many of these areas of global public goods, the rules-based system, pandemic response, the global trading system, um, the the global kind of financial system. And I think overall, the impacts have greatly improved global well-being. Now, I want to make a caveat, at least for humans, you know, non-human humans have not done so well in this global system, and I'll have more on that in the future, but if we're just assessing it in terms of kind of, you know, nation states and their, and their citizens, uh, I think the U.S. role has been quite constructive on many dimensions. On the human rights kind of humanitarian dimension, the U.S. foreign policy is decidedly more mixed. On the positive side, we have supported many democratic and human rights movements across the world- And this support has helped tip many nations in the direction of freer and more open societies. Eastern Europe is the classic example, you know, post the collapse of the Soviet Union. But even many countries in Asia and Africa, I think a credible case can be made that they have become freer and more respecting of human rights, you know, as the U.S. has kind of helped lean on those nations to kind of, you know, on the human rights front. Now, of course people can come back with counterexamples of of, of backsliding nations that that the US you know works with and has has relationships with but again i think on net we can look at the the international system and think that the, the march towards kind of democracy and freer societies the US has played a pretty constructive role overall not on every case but overall with, um, with respect to kind of major global disasters you know we have helped many countries respond with you know huge quantities of medical and food aid um, whether this is earthquakes or tsunamis or typhoons and, and the military's played a very constructive role there the fact that we have troops deployed all around the world who can then go and deliver you know food and medical supplies is, is a great benefit and when the u.s does that I think a lot of countries, Think very favorably of the U.S. and it's a good global service that we do. I think now with COVID, you know, we are sending hundreds of millions of vaccines around the world for, for free to countries to you know to to um, vaccinate their population. I think we should be doing much more. We should you know, but it, we're doing a lot, and I think we should be praised. And I think ho- Biden hopefully will you know raise the bar and try to do more, and then also do more on preventing future pandemics. Etc. Now, where the US has been very counterproductive and on the wrong side has been our continued support of despicable, evil regimes like Saudi Arabia, who are waging a merciless campaign now against the Yemenis. Uh, and here's a good example where, again, maybe making a deal with the devil, you know, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, when we had a global economy that was just 100% dominant. Based on oil and fossil fuels, maybe it made sense and we just had to do it. But you know what? We've had the technology to transfer away from fossil fuels for decades. And we've doubled down on wars in the Middle East, as we'll get to in a moment, and support for the Saudis when we just don't have to anymore. So maybe making a deal with the devil made sense 50, 60 years ago. But the fact that we're still in bed with the devil now is a failure of our foreign policy. I think the continued embargo of Cuba is another example, right? Cuba is a small, weak country; poses no threat to the United States, and you know, imposing large economic, humanitarian costs on the Cuban people because they happen to have a you know an oppressive communist regime is just dumb, counterproductive, and it just shows it's just a failure of, of U.S. policy you know, I'll I'll just wade into the U.S.-Israel thing very lightly, which is, look, I don't think U.S. support of Israel is overall a bad thing. I don't even think, you know, our monetary financial support of Israel is a bad thing. But I do think we haven't been critical enough of their treatment of the Palestinians, because if we're going to be honest, you know, Israel is marching pretty steadily to being a truly apartheid state, and we don't want that. And we have kind of, you know, we have just We have not exerted as much influence as I think we could to really show them that we're unhappy with their treatment of the Palestinians. Again, can we control Israel? No. Should we control Israel? No. Should we withdraw all of our aid to Israel if they don't do exactly what we want? No. But I do think that we could exert more influence in a constructive manner, and I I think we should do more. So now I just want to say if we take a step back here, and we stop here on the assessment of U.S. foreign policy on what I've laid out so far. Uh, you know the U.S. scores pretty well. You know we're far from perfect, but we do a lot of global good on many dimensions. Now, of course, what I've left out here is the major, you know, use of the of the U.S. military. And that's the big elephant in the room here. And if we once we get go down that road, we're going to see that US foreign policy has not been that good and in fact has been quite damaging and destructive. But it's important to separate these things out to show that there are many dimensions of foreign policy that are very important, very substantive, very significant, where the US is doing great things. Now we're far from perfect, but again, on these dimensions, We've done a lot of good, and in fact, some of our military interventions have done some good as well. However, in the past half century, the U.S. military has been involved in dozens of military clashes, pretty major incursions and conflicts with foreign powers. But the three largest military operations have been the invasion of Vietnam, the invasion of Afghanistan, and the second invasion of Iraq my assessment on these morally and intellectually bankrupt wars that are stains on the nation's history after the break. So, before assessing the three major U.S. wars of the past half-century, let me start by pointing out that there are many smaller wars that most Americans don't even remember. We've been in so many that, you know, you just forget them unless you really have paid attention to recent history. For example, the invasion of Panama under George Bush I. I wonder how many average Americans on the street know that we invaded Panama in the 1990s. Our intervention in Bosnia under Clinton which is probably one of the only legitimate uses of military force in this past half century that actually, you know, did a lot of good and can be justified. I want to be clear, a full assessment of all of America's military campaigns, large, small and clandestine, is beyond the scope of this analysis. But I do want to discuss the three big ones. Again, Vietnam, Afghanistan and Iraq. All three were unnecessary, illogical and should rightly be considered crimes against humanity. So let's start with whether they serve the purpose of criteria number one, keeping Americans and American assets safe and those of our allies. None of them did this because these wars were unprovoked conflicts against enemies that posed no threat to the U.S. or immediate threat to our allies. Vietnam was a poor agrarian nation that was going through a nationalist movement after a long period of colonization, and again, posed zero threat to the U.S. and its allies. The Taliban posed no direct threat to the U.S. and Afghanistan, even if one makes the case that we should have toppled them because they had tolerated al-Qaeda. That was accomplished in a matter of months. And after that, the past 20 years served no vital U.S. national security interest whatsoever. Iraq had no WMD and posed no threat to the U.S. either. And not only in all three of these wars did the U.S. not counter a real and existing threat, but these wars resulted in the deaths and injuries to hundreds of thousands of Americans and cost the nation trillions upon trillions of dollars that it could have been used for much more productive ends. The opportunity cost of wasting so much money on these failed wars literally boggles the mind. With respect to criteria number two, providing public goods to the world, these wars did no such thing and, in fact, helped to further destabilize large regions of the world. With respect to Iraq, our war there helped spur the Syrian civil war and the emergence of ISIS. So we actually made things much worse while also strengthening Iran in the process. With respect to criteria number three, promoting a rules-based international order, All three of these wars did the exact opposite, showing the world that the U.S. is an empire that will do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, while holding other countries to standards it does not follow. When you add the torture and the insanity of the Guantanamo prison and the CIA black sites around the world, the global war on terror, which includes Iraq and Afghanistan, greatly undermined U.S. standing and international law. Finally, with respect to criteria number four, promoting human rights, and preventing humanitarian disasters, all three of these wars did the exact opposite, trashing human rights and creating massive humanitarian disasters on top of the millions of people who we directly killed. That the fact that U.S. lost all three of these wars shows that even the most powerful country in the world cannot force victory when it is based on immoral and illegitimate causes. Before ending this segment, I want to make clear that not everything the U.S. military does is bad. I also don't want to say that everything that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan was bad. Iraq now does have a quasi-democratic government, and many women, particularly in the cities of Afghanistan, were educated, who otherwise would not have been over the past 20 years. But the other utter disregard for the lives of these people that we have displayed for over two decades makes a mockery of anyone who says that the small amount of good that we did made these wars worth the cost. That is just simply absurd. And I would claim that anyone who makes this argument is either a fool, grossly ignorant, or a warmongering apologist. Case in point, the fact that 70% of the Afghanistan people thought that the Taliban were preferable to U.S. troops and the Afghan government before our departure in 2021, says it all. We supported a thoroughly corrupt government that wantonly killed civilians across the country without rationale, due process, or any accountability for 20 years. What we promoted and tolerated in Afghanistan we would never have tolerated for a day in any other country of our allies or ourselves. Government convoys and warlords killing young men with impunity Day after day, for year after year, it was truly a reign of terror on par with the worst of the Taliban. This is what the U.S.-Afghanistan war was. That's the reality, not the sugar-coated bullshit that people peddle now who are apologists after we left. Moving on, I also want to point out that having U.S. bases in certain parts of the world definitely helps to keep the peace. I don't think there could be an argument that we need so many bases in all corners of the world, but the military, you know, presence in parts of the world has definitely had a positive role in in keeping the peace in certain regions and deterring certain, um, you know, adversaries from from invading or or doing things in countries, you know, if the U.S. hadn't been there, and also it's helped us deliver aid in disaster-prone areas or post-disaster. Reconstruction and having those military bases there has proved to be a good, you know, a good thing in certain areas. But I want to be clear. Overall, the role of the US military in this past half century has been incredibly negative. It has made America weaker while killing millions of innocent people and spreading chaos and destruction across the globe, including, of course, the death and injury of many, many tens of thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands of our own citizens. All of us Americans have blood on our hands, whether we like it or not, because it's our government and our tax money going to these unjust wars. To summarize, U.S. foreign policy on many dimensions fares pretty well, especially the more kind of humanitarian, soft power type of things that I outline, and I would say meets the criteria for sane and rational policy. Where most of this crumbles is in the realm of military policy in which we have continually pursued immoral and illegitimate and illogical ends. And then after incompetently executing nonsensical plans that are bound to fail, we have consistently turned bad situations into utter humanitarian catastrophes. We have been playing the role of bumbling empire for way too long and it must stop. The only ones who have benefited from all of this carnage and chaos are the military contractors, the military industrial complex, the merchants of death. And so, after the break, I'll come back with the antidote. Generals gathered in their masses. Okay, so to start off this antidote segment, I just want to state unequivocally, the U.S. military spending is an abomination, and it must be challenged. Most U.S. military spending serves no useful purpose whatsoever. It is a true mark of insanity. That we spend nearly a trillion dollars a year on maintaining a military we don't need, weapons we will never use, while spending way too little on the real threats of the climate emergency, cyber security, and fighting against domestic extremism. Unfortunately, Democrats are almost as bad as Republicans on this score, as they almost never challenge the military-industrial complex. And this is where I got to give Bernie credit. For all you want to say about Bernie, he's been consistent in calling for major reductions in the military budget his whole career, and this takes courage, right? Maybe it doesn't take courage in Vermont, where there aren't a ton of military contractors and there's not, you know, the you know that kind of lobbying group at your back. But it still takes courage because we are a warlike people. We are a violent, warlike people, and to get up, you know, consistently and say our military is too big. We're wasting money. We need to shrink it. It does take courage, even from a senator from Vermont. And so I think we should all urge Democrats across the board to call for a 50% reduction in military spending. What's so crazy is that our military is so large that even a 50% reduction would make our military by far the biggest in the world. But it would force the Pentagon to prioritize and not waste so much money because we know, again, they're literally spending hundreds of billions on weapon systems that don't even work and that we will never use under any circumstance. Now, a major reduction in military spending on this order may never happen in our lifetimes. And if it does happen, it's going to take decades to take on this entrenched military industrial complex that is you know, so deep and its tentacles are so far and wide across the entire United States geography. But we need to start somewhere. So I will return to this theme. But the antidote for today is simply to elevate this issue in your thinking. right? To say, you know what, we really need our leaders to put higher up on the priority list a reduction in military spending. Because if we simply sit back and accept that the military budget will stay at this elevated level of basically a trillion dollars a year and continually rise year after year, We are sure to start more immoral wars because all that military equipment and all those highly paid soldiers and generals aren't just going to sit back. We're going to use that weaponry, or at least some of it, in stupid ways as we have done this last half century. And we are going to squander our blood and treasure for perpetuity. And no nation can survive on such a trajectory, nor should any nation deserve to survive on such a trajectory. So again, the antidote is to elevate that in your thinking in terms of political priorities, that we need leaders who are going to call for a reduction in military spending, even if this is going to take decades to achieve. So with that, everybody, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, have a great rest of the week. Stay safe. Take care.